Let us pray. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I've been told that people today are not so concerned about righteous, being righteous before God as much as they are in having a relationship with God. You've probably been told this too. This, they say, is what people are really concerned about, relationship. And so what the church needs to do is talk less about sin and judgment and more about how God relates to us and how we can relate to God. This will supposedly lead to a more joyful, vibrant, and intimate Christian community as close relationships with God spill over into more healthy relationships with others. It all sounds religious enough, and to many it is very appealing. For those who want to be religious, but who don't want to come across as narrow-minded, parochial, it seems good that the church should be more about building strong and satisfying relationships than about right and wrong doctrine or even right and wrong behavior. This just makes people feel judged. Well, the first problem with such a perspective is the most obvious. God is righteous. This means that he does not relate to unholy sinners except as the holy God who holds them accountable and judges them for their sin. He sets the standard. What to do? God is righteous. We are not. God hates sin. We sin. This is the problem. If we want to have a relationship with God that does not consist of being condemned by him, we must be righteous too. There is no way around it. The second problem with this notion that we should emphasize relationship with God rather than righteousness before God is perhaps less obvious, but it is certainly not less ironic. And that is that the very premise is flawed. This idea that people aren't so concerned about righteousness, it's utter nonsense. Don't believe it for a second. People are extremely concerned about righteousness, especially, especially when it comes to their relationships. All their relationships are built on this or that standard of how to treat one another. Every marriage, every friendship, every brotherhood. This is true whether their standards are high or low, whether they are religious Pharisees or scheming tax collectors. Just see how people hate to be accused of doing wrong, and yet how insistent they are that no one do them wrong. And they argue this way even when they're engaged in things that are objectively wrong. See how they demand their own relationships be built on trust and mutual respect, and how often they, or how often they are offended when they are slighted. We won't put up with it. This right to demand justice we readily afford ourselves. Should we be so surprised by the prospect that God should likewise judge what he sees? He made us. He sees the heart. 
Or should God not demand that his relationships depend on righteousness, while we demand our own relationships do? We will not tolerate being treated like a doormat, but God's graciousness means that he's willing to be treated like a sucker. Right. And so we note more than a little hypocrisy in this claim that the church should focus more on relationships than righteousness, seeing as even our own relationships depend on righteousness of some form or another. Truth be told, what this opinion boils down to is this, that our relationships with God should depend on our righteousness. And that's what they're saying, not on God's righteousness. Rather than the Ten Commandments, then, some newfangled, man-made list of rules becomes the basis by which right behavior is judged. Whether that be Minnesota nice or whether that be live and let live, there is some standard by which you will be judged by your social interactions, period. It's just a matter of replacing God's law with our own. Behind every attempt to soften God's law or to turn it into something less judgy, and demanding, something more encouraging and affirming, more up-to-date. Without fail, behind every such attempt to make the law more agreeable to our contemporary context is nothing less than the age-old spirit of legalism. It is the attempt to justify oneself, to make the law more doable. It is never the doing away of righteousness altogether, but a replacement of God's law with the law's and rules of men, the replacement of God's righteousness with man's. This more liberal form of moralism is often known as antinomianism. We might call them hedonists or liberal, right? But it is moralism all the same. They appear more relaxed and free. They present themselves as morally laid back and accepting. But cross them transgress their rules of social engagement, say the wrong word or pronoun, and you're in for it. Prepare for moral outrage. You've broken the rules. Behind every live and let live libertine is a do-it-my-way legalist, a Pharisee who depends on his own righteousness and so enforces strict rules of civility to prove that he is righteous. Look at the Pharisees. Well, look at anyone, really. Jesus simply uses the Pharisees as a handy foil to condemn us all. The Pharisees imagined that by not murdering, they did no harm to their neighbor. They imagined that by not lifting their hand against someone, they could not be condemned by the hate in their hearts. But Jesus says no. Jesus says that in the heart is where the sin begins and that God judges it just as harshly. Jesus says that he who hates with words is as guilty as he who hates with poison or sword. Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, unless your righteousness before God exceeds what you demand of your friends and what your friends demand of you, 
unless your righteousness exceeds those standards of your own relationships, you will by no means have any relationship with God. God judges the heart. And God sees past both the vain claim to be more accepting than God and the vain pretense to be fully acceptable to God. He lumps both together in one bag of rank hypocrisy. The open-minded antinomian who seems to ignore sin entirely is exposed as a harsh legalist who demands his own rules be followed. And the severe do-gooder Pharisee who boasts in his observance of the law is exposed as a lawless criminal who knows nothing of how to love his neighbor. They are altogether corrupt. And we are guilty of both. We turn a blind eye to the sins around us. Sins against God. Sins against the marriage bed. Sins against compassion for our neighbor. Sins that our friends commit by skipping church for weeks or even months at a time. By which they flagrantly despise the preaching of God's word. And refuse to hold it sacred. And gladly hear and learn it. And we have our reward by appearing so accepting and gentle, as though it were merciful to ignore sin rather than correct it, as though keeping the status quo of a rocky friendship were more important than admonishing a brother or sister not to endanger his or her soul. It is we who have lines we won't cross. It is we who impose on ourselves and others, standards of social righteousness that we are too cowardly or self-righteous to violate. And why? Because crossing our lines is more unbearable than crossing God's, which we cross every day. For woe to him who crosses us. Where's the mercy then? We'll let sins against God slide, but do we dare let sins against us go unchecked? or uncomplained about, or unanalyzed to death until your brother is your enemy. We must admit our guilt. Or are we zealous in the other direction? Are we zealous for the law? Are we more conservative than what I have just described? Do we hate the immoral state of decadence our culture has fallen into, and the rot of our culture? Do we strive to live holy and honorable lives? Do we never miss church or fail to make biblically based principled decisions in our lives? But then we judge those who fall, those who are ignorant or weak. We hold bitter grudges against those who have done us wrong. In the name of brotherly admonishment, we condemn and drive away. We wear our outward obedience as a precious robe of respectability that not everyone is wearing, that we won't let anyone soil. Oh, we'd never kill. We ardently oppose abortion, for instance. Good. But do we ardently oppose gossip? Do we insult others for their faux pas and complain about those who have slighted us? Do we listen to folks complain about others or even about their own pastor without urging them to seek reconciliation and mutual peace and understanding 
Or do we shake our heads and say, I know, I know, you're not wrong? Do we think we have kept ourselves free from blame? Or should we not altogether, on the left and on the right, repent? The righteousness that avails before God is the righteousness of Christ. That's it. The Ten Commandments that we just heard are God's standard of righteousness. Only Jesus fully obeyed them from the heart. They don't command outward obedience alone, but perfect love. If we are to have a relationship with God whereby God blesses us and does not curse us, we must find it where God forgives us our sins for Jesus' sake. This is perfect love. This requires that we acknowledge our sin. It requires that we do not look for our righteousness in our obedience, but in Jesus. Jesus will not be found except where we find our sin. Jesus will not be found except where we find our sin. If we refuse to find our sin, we will never find Jesus. He is the sin bearer. He will only be found where we find our sin. Only in the cross do we find the righteousness that avails before God. Because it is on the cross that Jesus bore our sin and made satisfaction before the judgment throne of God. There on the cross, which we call his mercy seat, where we lift our eyes and hands. There, God gave the sacrifice that wins us salvation. God didn't rescue free men from Egypt. He rescued slaves. He made them free. So neither will he have a relationship with sinners and be their God, except by dealing quite squarely and deliberately with their predicament. He addresses sin, and we should expect him to. He exposes sin in order that he might forgive sin and credit to sinners the righteous obedience of his Son, which we receive freely by faith in his blood. God relates to his people on his terms, and he is abundantly gracious, and he teaches us how to relate to one another. This is what we mean first and foremost when we speak of the righteousness of God. We mean the righteousness that is ours by faith in Jesus. And without this, the only relationship we can have with God is very unpleasant. It is pure wrath. Our relationship with God is certainly based on righteousness, isn't it? But it is not our own. It is the righteousness of God that is revealed to faith. If folks find the defense of pure doctrine or the repudiation of error or the condemnation of immoral behavior or for that matter the condemnation of very common sins that we so easily overlook. If folks find this to be a bit judgmental, well then I, at least they're on to something. It is judgmental. God judges. That's the point. But he does not judge like the Pharisees judge. He excludes no one. Nor, nor does he judge based on some constantly changing standard of social behavior. His judgments are pure and good because he is pure and good. He hates falsehood and loves truth. And he doesn't make the law doable or fine-tune God's commandments for our circumstances. If we would rather not feel judged by God, it would do no good to ignore his judgments or pretend they don't condemn us. We should rather come to terms with our adversary quickly while we live, lest he deliver us up to condemnation. Whether anyone thinks it's uplifting or not is quite beside the point. It is God who exalts the lowly, and God judges. 
He has the moral high ground. See what he did with it. Jesus remained sinless even as he willingly bore God's judgment in his body and soul against your sin. That's what he did with his moral high ground. He agreed with God's hatred of sin even as he endured its penalty in himself to make peace with the world of adversaries. A healthy relationship with God is one that depends on the righteousness of Jesus to stand in the judgment. Those who do away with the law in an effort to be more inviting to others invariably set up a new law in its place. Acceptance of perversion, for instance, and the ostensible effort to appear merciful has so swiftly turned into a club to condemn those who oppose perversion as unloving and hate-filled. You've seen it. If you haven't, pay attention. Next week, you will hear Jesus command you to pay attention. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Those who imagine that they have fulfilled the law invariably reduce the law to similarly external rules. Whether dealing with a liberal or a conservative, therefore, in either case, when the law is heralded as the means by which we find peace with God, whether by making it more or less strict, the only peace we will find is peace with the world. Peace that depends entirely on our obedience to oppressive rules. But the law of God is not summed up in your obedience. It is summed up in one word, love. The obedience of faith, the love which God elicits from your heart by showing you a love that the world could never have imagined. Love cannot be discovered by asking what I owe in order to become righteous. Love will never be stumbled upon if we approach the law as a recipe for justification. No. Love is discovered. The spirit of the law is revealed only by asking what your neighbor needs. God saw what we needed. He fulfilled love not by coming to earth to prove himself right, but to rescue us from our guilt, to make us right before him. He loved us who loved ourselves, and we are justified not by our obedience to any law, but by Christ's obedience unto death in our pitiful place. And this is love. And this is our reason for defending the righteousness of God and confessing our own unrighteousness. Not to tout ourselves, but to extol the mercy of God towards sinners. God begins the Ten Commandments by saying, I am the Lord your God, as we just heard, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods. First, he identifies himself. Then he tells us what he has done to identify himself. Then he commands that we have no other God than the one God who has so identified himself. is the one who saves us. He is the God who rescues us. First, he rescues. Then he tells us how we should live. First, he identifies who he is. Then he tells us who we are. First he reveals what he does. Only then does he teach us what we should do. We are they who have no other God. We are they who have known love and seen the kindness of God who saves us. Our relationship with God is not determined by our obedience. Our obedience is determined by our relationship. 
The children of Israel were saved from Egyptian slavery when they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and Pharaoh's army was drowned. We are saved from slavery to sin when we are baptized and all our sin and the power of the devil is drowned. Only when we have been rescued from judgment are we able to see God's standard of right and wrong for what it truly is. Only in Christ do we see the pure love the law requires because only in Christ do we see this pure love toward us. Only clothed in his righteousness, freely granted by God's pure love, are we able to approach the Ten Commandments in freedom, enabled to pursue what is best for all our relationships, knowing that our relationship with God is sure and safe. Do you want a relationship with God? Do you hope this relationship might spill over in blessing toward your relationships with others? Then see in Christ that blessing that spills over onto you. See in Him the righteousness you need that exceeds all that any man can muster. See Him establish this righteousness by humbling Himself. See how you have received it by humbling yourself. And so consider now how it is that any relationship on earth which God has put you into can ever possibly be mended. Not by demanding what God didn't even demand of us, but by by giving what his son has given to us. The best of man, therefore, must die and be buried with Christ, who is the best man. He must be left dead in the grave, the old Adam, drowned in the waters of baptism. But what emerges to rise and live before God is that righteous man who lives by faith, who is joined to Christ and finds in this God and Savior and brother the identity and relationship we need before God. Because you emerge washed, forgiven, clothed in white, uncondemned, loved, and holy before God. As the children of Israel left all work behind in the land of bondage, so we too leave all vain attempts to be approved by our work. We are not slaves, and neither are our brothers and sisters. No, we are sons of God and co-heirs of eternal salvation. We pursue the righteous demands of the Ten Commandments not in fear, not to establish the perfect culture on earth. No, but in confidence that the love it requires has been shown us, and in heaven that culture prevails. It is perfect. We are reconciled to God. This is the basis for our peace with each other. There is no condemnation for us. We live to God. We walk in newness of life. By grace, God forgives what is lacking and accepts all our works of love toward one another as pleasing offerings on his altar of mercy as we pursue that love whereby we have been and remain dearly loved. This is how God relates to us. In Jesus' name, amen.